I read an interesting detail that uh, as part of this leftward shift in Brazil in the 60s mm. that was happening at the same time and like radicalizing radicalizing at the it was the same governments that were that were doing Brasilia yes right um, from Kubishek originally to Goulart Joao Goulart right the last one um, there's like a an economic crisis and the military coup backed by the US is incoming mm-hmm um, but before that happens, Goulart is like looking around trying to find some funding, mm-hmm. um, in part to fund like the development of Brasilia and the, uh, and the housing production. Okay. Uh, and he actually gets, uh, USAID support <laughs> from Kennedy's Alliance for Progress. <laughs> of course. Um, which okay. is amazing. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, this is in the, the book Mass Housing, um, there's a footnote, and if you read the footnote, it says that that funding was sent exclusively to areas of Brazil controlled by opposition parties, or, or in other words, by the fa- by by fascists. Yeah. So like, <laughs> yeah, you, like US... by, to São Paulo and uh, Rio and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So USAID up to, the, to, up to its tricks. To, yes. Back in uh, back yeah. in the sixties. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. That's right. Um, in which uh, we will continue our discussion on uh, the architecture of like the third world. Right. We're going to begin with um, Brasilia, mm-hmm. uh, which is mentioned in the Brazil Pavilion, right. award winning. Briefly. Uh, at the Biennale, mm-hmm. briefly mentioned. Um, and we're going to talk about Africa, largely West Africa, mm-hmm. um, particularly Ghana which is the subject of actually what looks like a really good pavilion at the Biennale, the Applied Arts Pavilion on tropical modernism. Um, So we'll talk a bit about that uh, too. Yeah. So you mentioned Chandigarh. That brings us back to uh, another famous slash infamous controversial um, capital Newtown project that we mentioned earlier, Brasilia. Right. I guess we won't go into too much detail on it. It's a subject for a whole episode that we'll probably never do. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, just to say that the the way Brazil is usually approached is as a kind of uh, utopian, again, modernist vision of what uh, uh, ex nihilo, uh, totally like clean slate modernist city would be. Right from the, you know, sketch of the major axes and then the development of the super quadras housing uh, blocks, like very formal systematized planning concepts, Mm -hmm. administrative center with a kind of structural, almost like anthropomorphic structure with like a head and body and then the curving, you know, roads that were... All, all the all the modernist faux pas, right? Uh, it also has the pe- peculiar characteristic of being a car-centered modernism. Yes, right. 
whereas like not typical outside the u.s yeah 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 i mean corb loved cars but apart from corb like (laughs) modernists tended to be for public transit right yeah somehow the critique of brasilia manages to like see modernism is bad because cars as cars are imposed in the postmodern era as the only form of transportation (laughs) that's right that's right (laughs) yeah um yeah, the, the basic take is that, and, and and Brasilia, you could say in some sense, failed as a planned city because informal settlements grew around it. And there, there was some, in some sense, Brasilia wasn't completed or succeed in its vision or whatever. The utopia wasn't realized. Mm. That's the narrative, obviously. Yeah. 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 It's rigid. It's rigid, yeah. inflexible. So Brasilia is no a... No individual a, freedom and agency. Yeah. It's a favorite punching bag of kind of critiques of modernism and planning. I think it's a key case study in the book, uh, Seeing Like a State. Have you heard of that one? Uh, this is a kind of a popular book that I think some architecture students read mm. in, with this kind of uh, anti-modernist inclination. Uh, it's written by a guy named James C. Scott, basically just a critic of modernism and the state in general. And when you hear that, you think, especially with a name like James C. Scott, you think, okay, this is some sort of neocon American. It really sounds like a neocon, or yeah. British ideologue. <laughs> but he's he's apparently an anarchist, <laughs> which is the second to, to neocon, the second most likely candidate to political ideology. One. And when I was reading about him, he gave a keynote at some Cato Institute uh, conference, uh, criticizing states and planning. So he's he at least works with neocons. Um, in this general uh, assault on uh, on the public sector, right? Um, yeah, what 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 these narratives about Brasilia leave out is the political economic context, particularly like the political context. Um, it's the idea that the architecture uh, itself, you know, tried and failed, yeah, within some sort of stable social context, rather than beginning, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the project it, it begins in in September '56 with the creation of a of a government body uh, under Joselino Kubitschek's government, sort of social democrat uh, kind of government, um, with Oscar Niemeyer and uh, Lucio Costa designing. Um, over time, there's there's like a political transformation happening in Brazil. There's a radicalization of the left word current, right? Within what's been like a highly unstable, shifting political situation this, since Vargas and yeah. I mean, this is, this is this is typical in Latin America. If you let yeah. bourgeois democracy function long enough in Latin America, you end it with a communist government. Yeah, that's, that's right. why you need military <laughs> coups every once in a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It works exactly. the other the, the opposite way than in Europe. In Europe, bourgeois democracy leads to fascism. In Latin America, it just leads to communism. So right, right. you need the regular interjections of fascism every now and then. And even in Europe, after the Second World War, bourgeois democracy was going to lead to communism. Yeah, if even there it was a bit... do a little post-World yes. War II fascism yeah, yeah, to stop yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's there's a couple changes of, of head of government. Um, the leftward direction of this tendency... Um, reaches its climax with Joao uh, Goulart. And then there's a military coup. Uh, and the the final straw, I guess, for the military, for the uh, comprador bourgeoisie, for like the Americans or whoever, 
right. uh, was the attempt to nationalize a huge amount of land, which is all like land reform is always it was specifically in Latin nationalize all land greater than X. I don't remember the size. Yeah. So it's like yeah. literally end large uh, landowners. Yeah. It was the same thing Which in, is the in, base in of Guatemala 10 years earlier uh, under our Benz. Even, even when it's not actually communism or socialism, just land reform, that's, that's yeah. a non-starter yeah. basically yeah. for colonialism. Like the, our, our Marxist take would be that if you want to have land reform, you must have a communist dictatorship. Yeah. Like you, yeah. you, you cannot, it's you impossible control to do of the it military. unless you, exactly, unless you yeah. impose it by force. Yeah. And not impose it on force on like peasants. You're imposing no, you're it on imposing behalf it of peasants on, on the, on land the landowners. La, yeah. La, landowners, Latifundia. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, the with with the military coup, you basically have a total end to this planning uh, public development project in, in Brasilia. Um, so the, the development of uh, the informal settlements and the favelas and all this stuff is like a product of uh, violent, violently truncated social democracy moving towards socialism in some way. Um, so yeah, we just wanted to throw Brasilia out there as like a key, as a nice case study where you see how crucial it is that you actually look at the political economic context of the architecture um, and not just judge it on as some sort of like pass-fail yep. design exercise yep. Yep. where like the problem was top-down visionaries or right. something right even the even the way i mean there there are legitimate criticisms you could have of brasilia like that, for example being car centric yeah like for example being car centric you could talk as the although as there's the, a pretty big bus terminal in the middle <laughs> you could talk as the as the brazil pavilion this year does about the um the way it affected local indigenous communities critically um but part of the part of the selection of the site uh, and the moving the capital to Brasilia and away from uh, Sao Paulo and Rio was to move it away from the dominance of the capitalist oligarchies who had their bases of power in those major cities. So e even the like uh, Terra Nova clean slate was an attempt to like move away from the dominance of of power elites within the state uh, and society. So even that is not, is not a simple criticism to make. You have to understand again, the context, the political context. Yeah. Like uh, I think actually the uh, Brazilian pavilion that won the prize uh, in the, in this Venice Biennale is like a good example of like, what are the insufficiencies of uh, not looking at like the full political history of these kind of projects. Um, I mean, it, it, there's nothing inherently wrong with what the pavilion is saying, right? Like the, um, the, uh, one, one of the key points that the Brazil pavilion makes is, uh, and that like quoting here, uh, covering, a uh, covering of the pavilion in art daily, um, that the, um, the first gallery of the pavilion is named decolonizing the canon and seeks to challenge the narrative that Brasilia, the capital of Brazil was built in the middle of nowhere ignoring the fact that the indigenous and Quilombola peoples who inhabited the area have already been expelled from the region since the colonial period and have finally been pushed to the outskirts with the imposition of modernist city planning. So the exhibition aims to present a more complex, diverse and pluralistic territorial, architectural and heritage image of national formation and modernity in Brazil. 
Right. Um, and like, like, I have no doubt that there's nothing inherently wrong or like factually wrong, and it's good to uh, to emphasize the uh, national uh, displacement, the 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 the, the uh, national displacement of all of the different indigenous nations uh, as colonization happens. And I have no doubt that building Brasilia where it was also po probably also we had some minor role in that yeah and they're, and they're going after like the canonical framing of brazil exactly the way we're also going after the canonical yes. framing of brazil yes exactly uh but the um the key point of brasilia is that it is a the, the new capital is a is inherently associated with this political project of uh, a kind of a national, uh, a new national uh, project of development that moves away from the capitalist uh, colonial frameworks. That's that's why it's built there in the supposed middle of nowhere, because it's more or less the regional center of Brazil, right? And it's not Sao Paulo and Rio, which were headed by fascist governors, representatives of the existing imperialist comprador bourgeoisies of Brazil. Um, and it's not distinguishable from precisely that political project of that culminates with the attempt to nationalize land precisely to give it back to the indigenous populations, among others. So, like, the, the political project that Brasilia represents is one of reparations and restitution in the end of the day. They are embedded into that political project. So, uh, it's, it's uh, like... Just looking at its modernist city imposed on a territory and its European architecture, and, uh, and, and it's it's a complex part of a complex history that le would lead, if it wasn't for U.S.-sponsored fascist coups, uh, to precisely the victory of what we, I suppose, we are all fighting for. <laughs> right. That like Brasilia is a decolonizing project because it's part of a political project, an economic project that has decolonizing consequences. Yeah, yeah. And that's the larger context for exactly. the world architecture we're trying to, exactly. to lay down. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Shall we talk a little bit about Africa? Um, a few examples at least. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like we've talked, in, everyone knows the the Latin American stuff in general terms. Brazil is just such a good, uh, yeah, like polemical example because it is, it's just like the the typical. It's it it is the dead horse, <laughs> right, right? That's been murdered so many times. Um, but the um, yeah, like we've already talked about the uh, prefab uh, in Chile and Cuba, ton of. Mass housing produced in Argentina. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, most of the mass housing that was built in the third world was built in Latin America. Right. Right, during that period. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, um, yeah, like, Africa has a very a series of very good examples. And uh, I think it's it really is in Africa where you better understand how you can't just look at uh, the modernism as a kind of static category that has an inherent political content, right? right. Um, obviously, modernism proliferates in Africa under colonial occupation. Like modernist architecture, high modernist architecture appears in Africa through uh, colonial powers. Right. Um, and uh, there's many examples of that. And some, some of the buildings are wonderfully gorgeous, <laughs> right? <laughs> 
Um, like, interestingly, for example, the Portuguese uh, modernist architects tended to go to Africa to be able to do modernism because modernism was persona non grata by the fascist regime in Portugal. But if you went to the colonies, it was okay because you were far away enough from the, <laughs> from the core. And right. in, in the colonies, modernism was like white architecture. Uh, so it contributed to the like Portuguese empire. If it went, if modernism was in Portugal, it was like foreign. It was uh, uh, external to the uh, local traditions of the Portuguese people, right? It was like basically it was Jewish, right? <laughs> that's that's the typical uh, like fascist characterization of uh, like a, a foreign conspiracy uh, culture that is external to our national traditions. Uh, modernism is always external to the local national traditions. Yeah, particularly in in the West. Especially yeah, in the, especially like, the it, like, yeah, the same argument that is used for its its colonial in the colonies is used for by the fascists, but for its uh, it's like, basically it's, it's also colonial. It's communist. Colonial. It's, it's Europe. It's Europe. It's a great it's it's great replacement theory. The white tra traditional forms are being replaced by globalism. evil globalist Bolshevik Judaic uh, conspiracies <laughs> that bring this art and culture to replace our own. Uh, but in the end, the critique is the same, which shows that it's not sufficient. Yeah, so like returning to Portugal, uh, the Portuguese example, uh, like for, to start making what is like, I, I guess, our key point. Um, one of my favorite architects ever is a Portuguese colonial modernist architect uh, called Pancho Guedes. Uh, go and check him out. Okay. Um, Might need to spell that for, for most of our listeners. <laughs> P A N C H O G U E D E S. Um, check his work; it's 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 amazing and gorgeous. So he's a Portuguese white colonial architect uh, in Mozambique, um, and his whole thing is that. He adapts modernism to the local conditions, but his adaptation emphasizes like an, a kind of an inclusion of at least what he interprets as being kind of African aesthetic motifs. Okay. Right? Uh, so you, you can read it as more or less like a modernist equivalent in many ways to Lutians. Adapting, yeah. including Indian, uh, Indianness, aesthetic Indianness okay. in his neoclassical designs. Right. Uh, that's more or less what it is, but it is gorgeous because it's modernism. It's not neoclassical, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like absolutely like I, I just love the whole thing. Um, yeah, but he was kicked out of Mozambique um, after the independence. The new revolutionary mm. anti-colonial regime, uh, like that. Adaptation through inclusion of uh, like local aesthetic uh, traditions or whatever, especially as interpreted by white colonial architects, is, is not their priority. Like they kicked yeah. out the white architects, and uh, together with all of the like white colonizer um, apparatus, including mm -hmm. the intellig local intelligentsia, um, like every other African post-colonial regime. Um, because, like, th there are fundamentally two key adaptation processes that compose the history of colonial into post-colonial modernism in Africa, right? Um, and not just in Africa, basically everywhere. And, like, uh, this kind of cultural aesthetic adaptation is not one of them. 
the mm. two important adaptations are first adaptation to technical adaptation to local climatic conditions this is number one and this happens under uh, under colonial occupation second one is an adaptation to a radically new political economic uh, project which is usually out of a, of a planned at least vaguely partially socialist logic of uh, accelerated national development that radically changes the type of programs that are built, or at, at least the way those programs function socially, right? Mm. So these are the two big adaptations that really matter and that end up defining that history. Um, there were certainly the priorities. Yes, there were some, it's not like they, they, there was like a wholesale rejection of local cultural aesthetic right. elements or whatever, they also appeared. But they are. That's not what defines what post-colonial architecture is, to the post to the actual post-colonial regimes, which is like completely counterintuitive to the contemporary kind of decolonizing discourse in the kind of a postmodern sense that dominates. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Most discourses in the cultural fields that we are used to, yeah. when people think about decol decolonization of uh, architecture, they think of it as a kind of an art thing. Yeah, well, they think of architecture as an art thing. Right. And they think of politics as a cultural thing. Right. Like the whole economic, developmental, yeah. political economy yeah. is totally absent from yeah. these. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, the it's just not at all, it's, it's not even the same concept, colonialism, yeah. basically. Yeah, exactly. And the types of stuff that appear as like, this is an anti colonial decolonizing project or whatever. I look at it, it's like, oh, it's Pancho Guedes, the guy who was expelled by the post colonial <laughs> regime. Right. Right. <laughs> Well, this, uh, this theme um, is the subject of what looks like a really good uh, pavilion that I wish we could actually see in person yeah, to yeah, talk more sure. about it and its actual details. Um, but that's the Applied Arts Pavilion in Venice called Tropical Modernism, Architecture and Power in West Africa. Right. And I'll just read the little intro blurb for it. Uh, La Biennale di Venezia and the V&A Victorian Albert Museum, mm -hmm. uh, based in London here, present tropical modernism, architecture, and power in West Africa, organized in collaboration with the Architectural Association and Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology, Kumasi. This presentation at the Biennale critically reflects on the imperial history of tropical modernism through an analysis of the work of the Department of Tropical Architecture, which is from the AA, uh, and a dozen key projects. It explores the ways in which this distinctive architectural style was initially developed and employed as a tool to support colonial rule before being adapted by West African architects to promote the excitement and possibilities of the period that followed Ghana becoming the first sub-Saharan African country to gain independence in 1957. And the curators are Christopher Turner from the VNA with Nana Biyama Ofosu and Bushra Muhammad from the AA. Right. So these are tutors. Yeah, these are these are, are tutors from the AA. Um, yeah, and from what I can tell, uh, you know, looking at images and looking at the descriptions, it looks like they're they're working through these same like interesting tensions between uh, modernism as uh, as part of colonial architecture. Um, but then the shift, once independence is achieved, the new meaning that modernism takes on, uh, and particularly how 
Um, it was a part of the Pan-Africanist independence uh, movement um, centered around Ghana and and Kwame Nkrumah. And they also talk about how uh, it was a professional shift from white colonial architects to national architects. architects. And they also mention a shift from like uh, colonial British architects to Eastern Bloc Soviet architects brought in as part of like Nkrumah's socialist right. project. This was, this was typical to all, like Ghana is an example of using actual Soviet architects, but generally right. using Eastern European, like socialist bloc architects was generalized all across Africa. Right. Yes, like, uh, yeah, this needs to understood as like the post-colonial political economic project is like, first of all, it is a political economic project. And here right. we're emphasizing like the economic part of the political economic. It needs to be understood yeah. that way. The key problem is uh, we have an equal trade relationship. We've already talked about this. Mm-hmm. And there we need to develop a national, uh, national production to become uh, like more self-reliant, yeah. less reliant on a kind of a colonial trade system that persists after political independence. Yeah. Um, and was the subject of Nkrumah's work on... Imperialism, neocolonialism. Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, Nkrumah, basically, like he's the revolutionary leader of Ghana, and but he's also a Marxist political economic like theorist. Um, he's an intellectual, and he writes uh, after being deposed, I believe. I'm not entirely sure actually right now, but I think it's after. I think he wrote it power. from yeah, uh, like shortly after, like immediately Guinea, as he right? loses power, he writes it from Guinea. Uh, so Nkrumah is overthrown. Nkrumah's regime lasts for like, I don't know, like seven years or something like right. that. He's overthrown by a CIA-backed coup, obviously. Sounds familiar. First one. First first one. First uh, sub-Saharan independent African nation. First CIA coup. <laughs> well, there was, the Arbenz coup is in the 50s in Guatemala. Mm, you're right. Guatemala is the prototype. Well, certainly the first one in sub-Saharan Africa. <laughs> and it predates most of the... It may be the second one. Okay. Right. <laughs> Anyway, it's important to note, by the way, that uh, the United States were big, big supporters of Ghanaian independence. Mm. They saw it as like a weakening of the British Empire right, right. as part of the transition into like, this is the American era now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Post-war dissolution of the British Empire and the, its absorption by a, a, a growing American empire. And from, from the like late 19th century, America had been yes. uh, positioning itself as an anti-colonial... Yes. Power. Yes. Um, Mostly in supporting Latin American independence movements against European colonizers. Yeah, so they can be part of the so Monroe Doctrine. So that they Doctrine. can then be all <laughs> absorbed by the Monroe, or evolving, uh, like what yeah. would become the Monroe Doctrine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it is basically the same all over the place after World War II. Um, so the, uh, the Americans support Ghanaian independence. In fact, there's like a very funny story. I don't remember where I read it. Nixon was vice president at the time. Nixon is VP and he goes to Ghana. He flies to Ghana to go right. to like the celebration of Ghanaian independence. And right. it was like all United States all support Nkrumah at the time. Uh-huh. Seven <laughs> years later, they organize a coup and depose him, a, a military coup. But at the time, that was like a positive step. Like set first yeah. stage, first independence. First stage, get rid of the British. Sec- second second stage, stage, get us in. Get us in, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so they were celebrating the first stage and a lot of black Americans saw the independence of Ghana as something like incredibly positive. 
This yeah. was like the black, black American uh, like revolutionary movement and civil rights movement was growing at the time. Was the, yeah. be, the beginning of that the kind of social explosion was, it was starting then, right? And um, under this like pan-African logic, a lot of um, like a, a, a significant portion of the American black revolutionary movement saw uh, American blacks as uh, essentially a colonized people and saw their struggle as a struggle for national liberation in the, sen in the same way that the, uh, in the, in exactly the same sense as the national liberation of African colonies. Yeah. And they saw themselves as part, as an integral part of the pan-African movement. Um, so Ghana becoming independent, independent was like a massive thing and um, black revolutionaries all over in America uh, support it and even go and visit. And a lot of black Americans actually go to the, uh, like manage to fly to Ghana to go to the commemoration of uh, Ghana, yeah. to the festival of whatever that right. they create. Um, so Nixon is there at the airport leaving like Air Force One or Air Force Two or whatever it is that VPs fly in. Um, and uh, he's, uh, he starts like handshaking all the people in the audience who's like the big reception and starts like handshaking everybody. And he goes like to some lad and says, um, so young man, uh, tap, tap, tap on the back. How does it feel to be free? And the guy says, I will know, sir, I'm from Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that was, uh, that's, that's a, a, a nice story. Um, I, think that, I think that's in the book, White Malice. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Maybe. Which go, goes in detail through this, right. uh, the scenes at the, at the independence celebration. Right, right, right. Yeah. So anyway, um, point I was making is after being deposed, Nkrumah basically writes the book, uh, what's it called, right? Neocolonialism, the last stage of imperialism. And he basically, which is of course, for those who know, if you know, you know, um, it's uh, building on Lenin's imperialism, last stage of capitalism, like neocolonialism, last stage of imperialism, um, in which he basically describes what happens if uh, a nation that is not, um, that is politically independent remains economically dependent. And he talks about that, the evolution of that, of the conditions that go into that and why independence must be an economic process of national development, accelerated national development. And the model that uh, young African nations uh, use for a nation under pressure that needs to be able to develop its own manufacturing base um, to become free of the whole like uh, raw materials exports, cheap labor based economy is the first few decades of the Soviet Union. And of course, the Soviet Union is at the time, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, supporting uh, independence movements. Um, and so there's this notion, this paradigmatic like exchange of what are the uh, white intelligentsia who are allowed in the country. The former colonizer white intelligentsia is kicked out. Uh, Max, Maxwell Fry and Jane Drew uh, are kicked out. Pancho Guedes is kicked out. And in come the um, I think Eastern European socialist architects with the know-how on how to develop industrial construction. This kind of cooperation with uh, Eastern European architects is, uh, becomes like dominant, it's all over. Um, every African country that becomes dependent uh, like asks, 
can you please send someone? And it can be the Soviet Union, it can be Poland, it can be East Germany, it can be like Romania, it can be like all sorts of uh, yeah. Eastern European socialist countries. Send in architects with the kind of manufacturing industrial know-how. And uh, yeah, so these white architects come in and in, in Ghana, uh, these uh, white architects, new white architects are mostly Soviet and they... Uh, they are working under the national plan. They were put at the uh, like availability of the new national project. Uh, one of the more beautiful quotes in uh, Lukas Stanek's book uh, that covers this, 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 this situation very well, uh, uh, Architecture in Global Socialism. One of the more beautiful sections, it's like a quote at the very, very start of the book, to how the book opens, which is with the following quote. I remember very well these Eastern European architects because it was the first and the last time that a white man had an African boss in Ghana. Hmm. This is how a Ghanaian architect recalled his encounters with architects from socialist countries in 1960s Accra. Wow. Ghana develops a, a typical like state uh, apparatus uh, governing um, architectural design and the, construct, uh, the construction sector. And their uh, chief national architect, Vic Agdebit, uh, all of these Soviet architects work under him and they help train local cadres. They establish two architecture schools, uh, if I'm not mistaken, one in Accra, one in Kumasi. Um, and yeah, they do all, they start doing a kind of a universalist version of the types of programs that you used to have before. Right, so, so what you 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 had colonial modernism, which is obviously colonialism arrives in uh, modernism arrives in Africa under colonial rule as part of the colonial project, uh, so usually with, I mean always with obviously colonial programs and the pro the, the stuff that is built in modernism is like uh, the uh, British Petroleum headquarters in Lagos mm. by Jane Drew and Maxwell Fry, for example. Okay. Um, the uh, like, there's like the big fancy hotel in the capital, yeah. which is for like obviously mostly white people and uh, white uh, dignitaries and white business people. Um, there's the like high school for the kids of the white people, right? Right. Uh, that that's that's kind of how it works. And then you have this, and you have this process, as I was saying, the first process of adaptation to local. Uh, like a technical adaptation to local conditions, mostly climatic conditions because of like heat management and uh, moisture and uh, ventilation and etc. cetera. Uh, situation is different, so technology needs to adapt. How you construct modernism needs to adapt. And this is what these colonial architects are very good at doing. And what, interestingly, Soviet architects were actually quite good at doing as well because in the Soviet Union, because it's a very large country with a very diverse climate condition, climatic conditions, they already have developed these technologies and these issues while building basically modernist Soviet housing in uh, Kazakhstan, in like Mongolia, right? Like they were yeah. adapting to ve very different conditions and building them in Moscow, like, uh, like radically different. So uh, they are very good at being like understanding how to adapt to these, these situations. And this is another reason why Soviet architects are so useful in this context. They already have this training even though they don't have the experience of working in colonial uh, countries because it's, uh, contrary to popular beliefs, the Soviet Union was not a, an imperialist power. Uh, <laughs> um, the, um, uh, the, um, 
second adaptation is, is, is this key one, which is all of these programs and, and all of these buildings that are built, which are perfectly fine and, and, and excellent and, and, and often very, very beautiful. Uh, the hotels and the high schools and the office buildings. They, these programs need to be universalized. And so you have like office buildings, but it's time for an expanding public administration of the new independent country, right? You have ho like hotels uh, are where you like exercise, train, uh, what then become models for like housing. Um, all the schools, instead of, you, instead of having one high school, now you have a whole network of schools for all of, all of the kids, for all of the national uh, African kids, not just for the <laughs> sons of the, of the white people, um, the colonial managers. So you, you basically have a kind of a, of a process of universalization of this colonial modernism. Or in other words, if you want to look at it this way, you make that modernism more modernist because yeah. modernism is like decolonizing modernism is making it more modernist. Right, right. <laughs> it's making it more universalist, not making it more localist, right? Um, and that's, that, that's the real progressive character of what's, uh, what's happening at the time. And it has uh, significant successes, but of course it also fails um, because um, these regimes don't last very long. Uh, yeah. like, again, like Ghana lasts for like seven years or so. Uh, and then like as they build a lot of stuff, they start. They mostly build like uh, they start developing the, this capacity for not for modern construction by building their uh, a sort of sort of symbolic monumental uh, core. Uh, what's it called? Black Star Square or Independent Square. The International Trade Fair, like mm. a very big complex of uh, modernist buildings, um, and. Um, they are at the time importing a factory uh, from the Soviet Union or a factory of prefab uh, uh, housing, uh, yeah. like concrete panel uh, housing, um, and uh, like in Chile or in Cuba. And they start preparing to build it. And as the project is finished and they're about to start building it, there's the coup and it doesn't go ahead. And it's like, right. it's like at least as I... As I as far as I'm aware, at least two very large uh, projects uh, for uh, one, one in Accra, one in Tema of uh, residential estates. Yeah, yeah. And this uh, mass housing program, um, like there was, a, there was a political decision to do mass housing produced by the state right? rather than mess around with this like aided self-help financing alternatives. Again, as we talked about last time, I think, like all the Western uh, bodies were recommending aided self-help as the means to solve housing yeah, issues. Yeah, yeah. Like just find a way to like give Finance cheap mortgages and, or yeah. like whatever to people to build their own homes right. or, or upgrade their neighborhoods or whatever. But Nkrumah explicitly rejected this as a neocolonial right. uh, option. And so interestingly did uh, Jomo Kenyatta uh, right. in Kenya, um, state-produced mass housing was the post-colonial, like the decolonial option for housing. But yeah, that's that's when the coup hits. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the mass housing, most of the mass housing ends up not going ahead. Some of it is still built, but uh, like a tiny 
portion of it. But there's like there's lots of stuff that is that is done. Uh, schools are done. Libraries are done. Hmm. Um, like smaller programs that are more like uh, individual projects instead of this kind of vast mass production yeah. effort. That is actually the important point. Again, this is like a speaking to also part of like contemporary architectural culture, uh, which tends to privilege like the uh, iconic set individual objects. Set pieces, yeah. Yeah, the set piece. Uh, whether it be small or big, it doesn't matter. Like it's like its, its own bit of architecture uh, as opposed like when it's mass production, it doesn't count as art, right? right. right. Um, but the mass production is exactly what is key to the National Independence Project. Because that's what develops a national industry that uh, helps the country become economically independent and sovereign. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the, the like a, a, a very good example is like uh, the Bogatanga Library, uh, which is designed by uh, American uh, American black architect Max Bond. Uh, again, like speaking again to this link, uh, like a, a typical example of this kind of the importance that this has in America for the black liberation movement in the United States, Ghana, the like mm -hmm. key cultural and political importance that it has at the time. Just like, I mean, Max Bond goes to goes to Ghana. Uh, so did uh, uh, Stokely Carmichael, right? Who even like changed his name to uh, Kwame Toure. Um, so um, yeah, like. The, the uh, by the way, for those who don't know, Stokely Carmichael, the key uh, black revolutionary leader in the United States. Yeah, so uh, a lot of stuff is built, but the mass production stuff doesn't get yeah, built. And yeah. that's the key. That's where you start developing a national uh, production, a national industrial capacity. That that's never where, gets that's where quantity becomes quality. Exactly. Yeah. And... Um, and uh, yeah, the, the regime ends, uh, is deposed, uh, and Nkrumah then writes neocolonialism and basically invents the contemporary understanding of what, what that we have of this concept, which of right. course everyone already forgot in the cultural field in the first world. Yeah, to put it in, in Hegelian terms, like you go straight to, to quality, like one, <laughs> one stylistic cultural object it can be revolutionary like in on its own terms, just as a... Right. Just as, as form. Right. As cultural form. Right. There's no like underlying structural transformation of right. society yep. into an independent sovereign nation. Right. Um, it all happens at the at the epistemological yeah. aesthetic level. Yeah, exactly. Usual idealism versus materialism thing. Yeah, exactly. Well, we 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 won't try to cover obviously all the examples, but uh, there's also a lot of Bass housing construction in Francophone West Africa, right? In Senegal and uh, Cote d'Ivoire, right? The economic context there is a less less obviously um, post-colonial nationalist, right? Uh, it's connected to economic development through a booming commodity market, right? Um, mostly I think based around coffee export. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and most of the housing there, I mean, most of the housing, I think including in Ghana, but most third world housing examples outside of socialist contexts end up being for middle income groups. Right. Um, I mean, this is a problem in Western yeah, mass yeah. housing as well. Yeah. Uh, and I, from what I read in the Ghanaian context, it was like, again, that issue of, uh, building such high quality housing that you limit your 
the amount you're going to build. Yeah. And and this this is a dynamic that was big. Yeah, in, and in Britain, the, the, yeah. The, the regime building it doesn't doesn't isn't does either doesn't last long enough or yeah. doesn't universalize to massify it enough to, to massify it enough to become for bring everybody. The, yeah, bring the prices down enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, very interesting. The the sheer mass of housing that was built in these countries in a in a very short short period yeah. 40,000 40, units low cost units built in Cote d'Ivoire in the seventies. Yeah. Um, but then again, this runs into uh, the economic crisis. Uh, in the late 70s, 80s, yep. there's a crash in these cheap commodity prices that undermines their economies. It undermines the Ghanaian economy as well. Right. Um, and then the full uh, neocolonial system. Yeah, and, this, and all, all of these itself. developments that are built end up suffering from the same issues that welfare state housing in the West, in the first world, ends up suffering from, like, also, like chronic under, under maintenance. Yeah, uh, and under services and establishes contradictions with the very like physical models of of Bill. Like the, 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 uh, an example I I know from uh, Zanzibar, uh, which is kind of an interesting story because the uh, instead of Soviet uh, like the Eastern the socialist country white people that came in to replace the former colonizer white people in helping develop a national project were East Germans. Um, and the East German architects were quite a bit worse than the Soviets uh, at, <laughs> at adapting to local climate conditions. <laughs> they didn't have that experience. <laughs> um, so there's like a couple of um, a couple of developments in Zanzibar, like a first estate that is done with uh, like uh, we have the advisor of the East German architects, the Kikwajuni district, and then basically there's it has several problems, and basically the local architects and the government like kicks out the Germans. <laughs> Right, right. Kicks out these Germans, and uh, and uh, in the following Kilimani district, it's all uh, local national Afri African right. architects, right. Um, which interestingly looks more high modernist than the the first one, um, if you look at it. But the uh, but like what you read about the state of these particular districts that I was reading is that yeah they are they are heavily degraded, uh, water doesn't work. So uh, people now, like, this, this is built with the expectation of modern amenities. Yeah, As like part the of, accompanying like, infrastructural yeah, development. If the infrastructure expect. then ends up not working because of, like, the, the, the defeat of the, of the developmental project and the imposition of neocolonial economy, like, all of the issues that you have in public housing in the West, like, you're going to have them multiplied by several. In, yeah. a, in, in a in a in a new colonial situation where yeah. like even if there's no running water in the pipes, so you have to go to the well. But now going to the well requires you to go down five step five five stories of steps all the way down and then all the way up with a jar instead of when everything was like a, a, a village with huts at the ground level. It's worse now because modernism made it worse because it doesn't have the accompanying. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that there's a lot of internal contradictions of how these processes develop and a lot of stuff that is now in pretty bad conditions. And it's it's bad. It's bad that it is like that. But it's important to understand what the historical process that leads to this situation is. And it's not the architecture's fault. Archite yeah, yeah. What's bad is neocolonialism. What's bad is neocolonialism. It's yeah. not the absence, the short, the production of a short period of time in which neither colonialism nor neocolonialism existed. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So maybe we should return to the Biennale uh, and to the contemporary moment and right. kind of like bring with us what we've been discussing. Right. 
right? Right. Like, why why have we previously been talking about the architecture of the third world? Because we're talking about a moment in political economic history, in geopolitical, geoeconomic history, in which architecture was connected to processes of post-colonial, revolutionary, and liberatory development. Yeah. Um, in diverse parts of the world. Yeah. Right? So... Basically all over the world. Yeah, basically all over the world. Um, and we talk about, obviously... This was the, one of the most optimistic periods in human history. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And we've, we've covered the welfare state in detail, and we wanted to spend some time, you know, not enough time to cover all these things, really, uh, fully, but some time just discussing the larger global context for architecture of the kind that we've been discussing in our podcast, more or less continuously, right? So our, our, our curiosity with regard to the, the present Biennale is like we, we wonder whether there are contemporary parallels for this history today and whether or not they could be included here. And if not, why not? Right. And what is it about the contemporary architecture discipline and its institutions in the West, institutions like the Venice Biennale, that they make it difficult to... Uh, examine these things. So we're taking like Schumacher's critique, Doug's reframing of it, uh, and then posing this as like what kinds of positive architecture building examples could there be to talk about for architecture today right? Uh, in the global south? Like to the extent that could we even start talking about a new third world movement with new third world architecture? Right because it has this historical political right. economic parallel, right. right? In the context of multipolarity and the changing world system and the decline of right. Western hegemonic dominance. I mean, on one hand, it's possible that just the, crit the historical critical mass isn't there yet and the architectural projects have not yet appeared because like the practical developmental projects have not yet appeared. Like the foundations are being established right. at the geopolitical economic level. So because architects in third world countries do not yet have access to these projects. They are still stuck in the one market they have access to, which is these culture markets dominated by white uh, first world uh, institutions like the Biennale. Right, right, yeah. And so they have no option other than to, like they internalize that, that, that fact and develop this kind of ideology of culturalism. But once the op actual opportunities, actually the actual material opportunities to make actual development happen in their nations, then maybe the the direction the ideological direction is going to shift yeah and there are like good signs like uh, it, undoubtedly again referring to the question for by our patron um the pritzker going to francis carey uh i mean francis carey's architecture being like localized uh like the, all of those little schools and stuff they're all awesome right right i uh, i mean his work becomes garbage when he comes to the first world and does a fucking museum <laughs> That just looks like another run of the mill yeah, because that's what the European architecture that's because that's are. that's what it is. Yeah. 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 But when he's doing like educational projects that are like uh they, yeah. they they look like they are good because they look like third world architecture because they are third world architecture in the sense of a rising first world even if in this case it's probably funded by not by public state, but by <laughs> right. whatever uh, benefit thing. Yeah. 
it still it still seems like there's got to be some. I mean, I I without any sure knowledge sort of assume that there's some sort of split between professional institutions and disciplinary institutions, right. which will take time to yeah. uh, realign. Yeah. Um, and maybe the African Futures Institute that LOCO is developing will be one of those institutions. Yeah, it might contribute to it. I mean, we, we, were, yeah. we were a bit mean to her, but maybe like uh, historically there is a progressive tendency that is developing there and uh, yeah. it's going to be good. Yeah. The fact that they began by importing the unit system from Har- from the Harvard GSD and the AA is not yeah. necessarily a, yeah. a positive yeah. side. I don't know. And like uh, that they started also with the whole like uh, like getting a couple of like architects. Yeah, yeah. That don't count as white. But uh, obviously that's that's a history to unfold. Right. Um, I wanted to give a brief shout out to a pavilion uh, that I was reading through that had some interesting ideas that I think connect to our discussion. Mm-hmm. And that conveniently and rarely for me. Okay. Is the Canadian is is an opportunity oh, to shout no. out the Canadians? The Canadian. I haven't uh, looked pavilion. at the Portuguese pavilion. This is going <laughs> to be trash, probably. Let me see. Is the Canadian pavilion going to be better than the Portuguese pavilion? Mm, probably. So it's uh, that'd be a, a rare victory for me in this. Uh... <laughs> Do you want to briefly describe the Portuguese pavilion? No, no, no. I okay. don't want to care about the Portuguese pavilion at all. Okay. <laughs> so the the Canadian pavilion. Uh, is called not for sale with an exclamation point. Okay, then that's that's a, that's a better, less generic title than the title of the Biennale as a whole. Yeah, not for sale. That's great it's, title. It's a good title. Um, the blurb on the wallpaper uh, article says, um, this year it aims to draw attention to issues, challenges, and potentials surrounding the housing crisis in Canada. Connections among people as well as between humans and nature become a key narrative in the show too. Um, the key, the display has been curated by Architects Against Housing Alienation, a curatorial collective. Architects Against Housing Alienation. Okay, I'm going to try to be positive and not fixate on the mm-hmm. use of the word alienation, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's 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 mostly great, uh, I think. Um, but the one particular like this this group, uh, this collective group. Um, uh, which includes uh, actually my former uh, tutor at the Uni- University of Toronto, my thesis supervisor, okay, Adrian Blackwell. Um, one of the projects that they've done that I think is included in the show is something called First Nations Home Building Lodges. Uh, and the description on their website, uh, these projects are, like, are kind of posed as political demands as much as they are like actual architectural projects. So it fits within uh, Schumacher's critique of the lack of architecture. Right, right. But I, I don't think it actually does because I think these are political demands with clear architectural content and consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, so the demand is this. We demand home building design lodges tied to housing manufacturing facilities on reserves to build capacity within communities by grounding the production of houses and their components in community values, language, and education. Uh, so this is prior to a design because it's demanding the program. It's demanding the program and the productive 
capacity right. and investment right. to right. realize that program. Right. Uh, so it's a political demand on government and institutions right. to be to create a productive capacity right. within a the communities. Produ- literal and yeah, First Nations uh, a community capacity to build build their own housing, right. design their own housing. Um, and the activists I'll just name. One House, Many Nations, Idle No More, Sylvia McAdam, Alex Wilson, uh, with the involvement of architect David T. Fortin. Right. Uh, so I think this fits within our framing of what uh, like liberatory architecture, we're, we're in the... We're in the it's, that's not what our liberatory architecture is, but yeah. it is what liberatory architecture requires. Yeah, we're kind of upstream yeah. in the process. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we're talking about uh, like an attempt to produce post-colonial decolonized architecture in a settler colonial country. Right. right. Uh, so I think this is this is like a, a really nice example, particularly in its focus on like developing productive capacity. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, That's a proper sovereignist. Yeah, yeah. Like in the in the way that Nkrumah would approve. Yeah. Um, and the uh, I, this is not something that I'm particularly knowledgeable about, but the the issues with housing, the way the the way communities which are often remote have have housing shipped to them or how it's built, what kind of assumptions uh, uh, a Canadian um, so, like colonial Canadian architects make about the housing needs in communities, all these contradictions exist. So the idea of just developing the economic uh, and productive capacity to just produce housing in the community, in the nation, the first nation, right? It's like a national sovereignty right. over housing. Right. So yeah, big shout out to, yeah, uh, yeah, to this yeah, example. Sure. The Portuguese pavilion is about water scarcity, which okay. is an important topic in Portugal, <laughs> given that there's like an accelerated desertification of the southern or the south. Uh, it's right. like the de- Sahara Desert is it's entering the Iberian Peninsula because of climate change. So Water scarcity, not an issue in Canada, which has, I think, like 50% of the world's uh, fresh water. <laughs> right. I mean, Portugal has like like 70% of electricity production in Portugal is hydroelectric. Um, right. It's like right. one of the most hydroelectric countries in the world. So there's plenty of rivers. But uh, uh, whatever. I don't, uh, it has a stupid drawing. I don't want to look at it. <laughs> Obviously, there are... There are so many pavilions that we aren't there to see. There's probably a lot of good stuff yeah. in the Biennale yeah. that we're unable to yeah. give credit to yeah. and discuss. Yeah. We've, as we always do, been fairly critical uh, in our overall framing. We think we're, we still think we're right, even though not being there. Like there is a yeah. overall, overall, overarching problem. And we can only speak to that, but we cannot speak to like the specific instances and to which degree the overarching problem determines each of them or not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the real uh, like decolonization of architecture, uh, we hope it is going to be happening quite soon. Uh, <laughs> not because of this Biennale, but uh, because of the ongoing geopolitical processes. Yeah. Um, geopolitical economic processes uh, in the world, the de-dollarization of the world economy, the rise of uh, BRICS plus, um, and uh, the catastrophic uh, collapse of uh, the United States uh, empire. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, 
and the rise of a new like uh, the global majority. But the the point again is is the same point we always make, which is it's it's changing political economic conditions enable architects to produce changed architecture. Yeah. Um, so while we think like like Doug's question poses, there could be you know anticipatory things to show. Right. And there probably are already realized things to show. And there are probably more anticipatory things to show than the con contemporary, as you say, like definition of architecture as yeah. not including building. Uh, yeah. The further away from building, the better it would allow. Yeah. So we still think there's an ideological contradiction around how the discipline of architecture, especially as it's embedded in, in Western institutions right. of the postmodern period. Yeah. Broadly, of which Venice is, of, yeah, is like it's like the central one of of postmodern yeah. architecture. Exactly, and the Pritzker Prize. It's yeah. also a, like it's the two key institutions that decide, yeah, what what counts as architecture in the postmodern era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see where where actual anti-colonial post-colonial architecture goes. Because it's going to go somewhere. It's going to be there. Yeah. And soon. This is actually a really exciting... Yeah. And maybe this Biennale is... is uh, And I think it's even framed by the curators as like a... As some sort of an anticipation of the future. Uh, which, as they're framing, is going to be influenced primarily by... Like, the non-Western world. To right. put it that way. Yeah. The exactly. non-colonial exactly. world. Exactly. Uh, yeah, which is going to be really exciting to, yeah. to see. Shall we leave it there? Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Hope you liked it. It was long and... Um, thorough. And thorough. Chewy. And see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.